All right, let's turn to John chapter 12. So we're counting down to the cross. Last week, we began in John chapter 12, and in John chapter 12, verse 1, begins like this, then six days before the Passover. So we're counting down to the Passover, counting down to the cross. And last week, we looked at the three, the three instances during the life of Jesus that he was anointed with oil. One of those happened at the beginning of his ministry. Two of those happened at the end of his ministry. Today we're going to look at what is commonly called, referred to as the triumphal entry. Now normally we talk about the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day traditionally in the church that we celebrate this event called the triumphal entry. It was when Jesus came into Jerusalem the week before Passover. Now we're taking the six weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, and we're going to talk about some of the events that happen on each of those days as we count down to the cross. And here's the reality more than likely, what happened was Jesus, we see this in, um, in John's gospel here, actually, when, um, actually it's not in John, it's in Luke's gospel where Jesus is, um, is coming through Jericho. Jesus is coming through Jericho, and this is the uh, this is the incident where he he heals uh, blind Bartimaeus. And um, I'm sorry, I think I've got the wrong gospel. I think it's actually in Matthew's gospel where we see that he comes comes through Jericho and he goes to the house of um, of Zacchaeus. Well, we can, kind of de- we can kind of make a deduction when the gospel account talks about Jesus coming through Jericho and he sees Zacchaeus and he stays at the house of Zacchaeus and then the next day he goes to Jerusalem and he comes to Jerusalem and he gets there in the evening and Mark's gospel tells us that he got there in the evening and he goes to the temple and he looks around and he goes back to Bethany. And it's believed that Jesus probably came on the evening uh, before the Sabbath and he got to Jerusalem, and on the Sabbath evening, he went to the house of Lazarus, and that's where they had the dinner, the supper, where Mary comes and she anoints Jesus. And then it says, that's what we read last week in John's Gospel. And so, beginning in verse 12, in John chapter 12, verse 12, after that event, it says, the next day. So we know that after this event of this dinner, it says the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So that last statement there in verse 19. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, See, you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What they're implying there and what we see this so this is at the end of jesus earthly ministry this is six days five days before his crucifixion so we see that now for jesus time he began his earthly ministry three three and a half years prior to this so you see all throughout the earthly ministry of jesus as jesus is challenging the authority of those religious leaders and jesus is coming and he is proclaiming the kingdom he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom he talks about how the pharisees have put weight upon weight upon weight burden upon burden upon burden upon the people he called them sons of hell, sons of the devil. I mean, he was pretty merciless to them. And so, as a result of Jesus not playing their game, not playing by their rules, as a result of Jesus challenging everything that they stood for and everything that they had built for themselves and for their own glory, they were seeking a way to discredit Jesus when they realized they couldn't discredit Jesus because he couldn't be challenged. And they see now that the people, he's got the people, and they're desperate to find a way to destroy Jesus. So let's go from John chapter 12 and let's go over to, let's go over to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. It's Luke chapter 19 where we have the account of Zacchaeus, Jesus meeting Zacchaeus. And in the beginning of 19, it's, uh, it gives us that account. Jesus is in Jericho. Now Jericho is about, Jericho is probably about uh, 12 to 15 miles so when Jesus is coming into Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, he's still, it'd be like you walking from here to Round Rock. Walking. They're walking. And it's not just Jesus and his 12 disciples that are walking. More than likely what's happening here, because this is the Feast of Passover, before we begin reading in Matthew, I mean in Luke chapter 19, I want to bring to your attention Luke, I mean John chapter 11, verse 55 says, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So 
it's six days before the Passover, but what's happening is there are pilgrims, there are Jews making pilgrimage, and they're coming from all over the country. In fact, they're coming from all parts of the known world. So if you were a Jew living uh, in Italy, uh, or you were a Jew living in what's present-day Turkey or Asia, and you had the means, you were commanded to come to Jerusalem for this feast. And so most of the people lived in the nation of Israel. And so at this time of pilgrimage, there could have been as many as three million people coming into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this feast because the Passover lamb had to be killed in Jerusalem. It was just, it, it was God's law. And why did God set the law up that way? Because that law was set up because the law was always meant to show us Christ. So why did God institute the Passover in Egypt? Because God's intent was to send Christ. And the Passover, the shedding of that blood, the killing of that lamb in Egypt was just a type and a shadow. It was a signpost pointing us to Jesus. And so when God instituted the law of Moses, and and he tells Moses, and we see this in Leviticus, and he institutes all the feasts, the seven original feasts, and he says, in the place that I will cause my name to dwell forever, you will, every male, come to the place that I've caused my name to dwell forever. Well, when God gave it to Moses, there was no There wasn't a city of Jerusalem that the Jews were living in. Jerusalem was was a Jebusite city. It was established and ruled by pagans when David conquers the city and takes the city. It was centuries later before Jerusalem became the place in the mind of the Jews, that God would cause his name to dwell forever. And they established a physical city. And so we go from a tabernacle, a tent, literally wandering around in the wilderness following God, to King David establishing a city, and Solomon, his son, building a temple. And once the temple was built in Jerusalem, that became the focal point, and that's where they came to celebrate their feast. That was the place God would cause his name to dwell forever, or so they thought. So the Jews thought, this temple, this city, this is it. The eternal city. That's why Jerusalem is called the eternal city. And it is eternal because we see in the book of Revelation The church, the bride of Christ, is the holy Jerusalem, and she is eternal. And so the Jews come to Jerusalem, and so they're coming from all over. So there are people streaming into Jerusalem. It wasn't just Jesus and his 12 disciples. And this is why when they come into Jericho, and you you hear the you see the account of Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus can't see, but he can hear. What's he hearing? He's hearing all the people talking about Jesus. He's hearing all the people talking about the Messiah. And he can't see Jesus, 
but he can hear and he knows Jesus is near and he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Why son of David? Because son of David was a messianic title because he could hear what everyone was saying and blind Bartimaeus knew the Messiah was near. So he cries out. So then Jesus comes on into Jerusalem and as he comes into Jerusalem, let's pick up the story. Jesus and Scores and scores, hundreds, thousands of other pilgrims. Let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Yes, I will put my glasses on. So my wife doesn't get nervous for me and my daughter. Luke, 20, Luke 19, 28. When he had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and they threw their clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as they went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the thing that makes for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come and upon you, and your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, I wish we had time, but we don't. If you read the different gospels, you're going to see that the different gospel writers are giving you different detail. The four Gospels are not meant to be four identical versions of Jesus' life. Please understand this. The four Gospels, the first three are called the synoptic. They, they're very close. John's is very different than the first three. 
But even though the first three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very similar in their accounts, they're not meant to be identical. They're giving you different things. So, for instance, if we look at the triumphal entry, uh, we see that in Matthew 21, it's recorded that the people, when we compare these four accounts and we see how the people reacted, what they said, and how they celebrated, the four accounts give us a whole picture of what this looked like. So in Matthew 21, 9, the people were crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us, Lord. Save us, Lord, in the highest is what they were crying. Hosanna, blessed, Mark 11, 9 and 10. It's recorded, Hosanna, blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And in Luke, we just read this, in Luke, they said, They praised God with a loud voice, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. In heaven peace and glory in the highest. They're quoting what the angels declared at the time of Jesus' birth. And then in John chapter 12, verse 13, John is the only one that records that they carried palm branches. He's very specific. The others tell us that they had branches. They had leaves from trees or branches from trees, and they laid them on the ground. They laid their clothes. But John tells us specifically they had palm branches. Because palm branches, were a, that, that was a common thing if you had a, a king, a conquering king especially. A ruler, as they would approach, they would wave palm branches as a sign of honor, as a sign of the king's victory, as a sign of the king's rule. So when they cut palm branches and began to wave palm branches before Jesus, they were not just with their mouth declaring him the king, they were demonstrating with everything that they were doing that he is the king. They were declaring the reality of their Messiah is what they were doing. Now, whether they fully understood that, and you got to remember, there's a lot of people, and this crowd is getting, they're, they're getting caught up in this. Because now Jesus has walked the earth for three years. He's performed miracles. He's done these things. And his name and his fame has spread throughout the nation. And every year he would go up and he would celebrate the Passover. Every year he would go up and he would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Every year he would go up and he would celebrate the Feast of Pentecost because he was a good Jew. He was obedient to his father. He was obedient to the law. And this year we see that when this Passover came, they're asking, I wonder if Jesus is coming. Yes, he's coming. Yes, he's going to come to the Passover. In fact, he is the Passover. And so they're declaring all of this as Jesus is making his way on the road and he's coming into Jerusalem. So they welcome Jesus as the king, though they did not know fully what manner of king he was. I don't think they really did. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was. They did not know that he was not just a king. He was the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. 
And so many along the road waving those palm branches, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, no doubt hoped, if not believed, that Jesus was the Messiah, and this was the triumphal entry of their Messiah that would put underfoot their enemies once and for all and usher in the kingdom of, of Israel, restore the kingdom to Israel. This is what they would ask Jesus. Jesus, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This was everyone's expectation. And so, if you can picture this, so there's the Mount of Olives, and when you... you between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem is a deep valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. And so Jesus would have to ride up onto the Mount of Olives. And then that's why the Bible says he made his descent. He makes his descent and then he rides up into the city. So as Jesus is coming up and he's on the Mount of Olives, he sees the city of Jerusalem before him. Here is the king looking at his city. And in the city are thousands upon thousands of people. And on the Mount of Olives are thousands upon thousands of people. Because these pilgrims were coming and they, they would camp in the suburbs. So they would camp on the Mount of Olives. They would, they would just be everywhere. And they're making their way into the city. And so here comes Jesus. Here comes their Messiah. And you have all of this pomp and all of this circumstance going on with the crowd because the crowd got caught up in all of this. And when Jesus makes the crest of the hill, we see that Jesus weeps. He begins to weep. And we see that Jesus is heartbroken. Why is Jesus heartbroken? He's heartbroken because of the sin of his people. He's heartbroken because of sin. So even though, the, even though these people didn't understand fully who Jesus was, here's the good news. That through the broken heart of Jesus, he would save his people even though they didn't have eyes to see him as their king, the king that he was. Because for many when Jesus didn't bring salvation the way they thought he would, or he, they thought he should, many turned from him. Many didn't, but many did. And so Jesus, the king, is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. It says a colt. How many of you pictured a horse when you read the word colt or heard the word colt? It wasn't a horse. Jesus wasn't on a horse. He was on a donkey's colt. He was riding on a donkey. And actually, Matthew's gospel tells us there was the mama donkey and her colt tied up together. And Mark and Luke don't tell us about the mama. Matthew does. That actually, when, when they went and got the colt, they brought the mama and the baby. They brought the mama and the colt. And in Matthew says that they set Jesus on both of them. But it was the prophecy that he would come riding in on a colt. This is Zechariah 9.9. 9. Your King James uses a different word I won't use. But it's not a bad word. It's in the Bible. 
Everybody's got one. I'm not talking about, well, I am talking about donkeys. Riding on a donkey. Now, the point is, Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, the Victor, came riding into Jerusalem. The King came riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Now, donkeys kind of fell into disrepute, but there was a time when prominent people rode on donkeys. We see this in the Bible. The judges rode on donkeys. Uh, Jacob rode on donkeys. Uh, uh, Saul went looking for his dad's donkeys and and found a prophet instead. Um, But from the time of Solomon on, the horse became. The Babylonians, they, they brought horses from Babylon. And Solomon, the horse and war chariots, they didn't use donkeys to pull war chariots. So they had this great military might and they had these war horses and the horse was just more majestic. It just looked more powerful. The, the scripture, there's the song. This is what the, the uh, Israelites sang when they came out of, of Egypt and the army of Pharaoh was destroyed in the Red Sea. And they sang, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. So here comes King Jesus riding on a lowly colt, a donkey's fold. And he comes riding in as a picture of humility. And in Zechariah 9.9, it it actually says, this is exactly what it says, riding upon a donkey's colt. This is how your Messiah comes riding in. Look at Zechariah 9.9 real quick. Zechariah is right at the end of the Old Testament, right before you get to the New Testament. Right before the book of Malachi. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. But I want to draw your attention to the next verse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And what that tells us is that this king who came riding in on a donkey's colt didn't come with an army full of military might and armament to overthrow Jerusalem and take it back for God. This is what the the nation of Israel wanted. They wanted Jesus to come. They wanted him to, to mount an insurrection and overthrow the Romans. And they thought God would give them the the grace, the ability to do that, and they would have a military victory that would restore the city and the kingdom. And they would have a military overthrow of the Roman government. 
But that's not what the prophet said. The prophet said he's not going to come on a war horse or with war chariots. He's going to come on the colt of a donkey. And he's going to put away the chariot. He's going to put away the bow. And his dominion and his rule is not going to be accomplished the way you think it's going to be accomplished. Not through military might. I'll cut off the chariot. Meaning the Messiah's kingdom will not be established or maintained by physical force or military might. But he comes in humble obedience. Through his humble obedience unto death, Jesus won the victory and was given the name above all names. We don't have time to do it, but if you read the second chapter of Philippians, in in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, Paul writes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but instead humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so it was given to him the name that is above every name, that at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth. That phrase there that says Jesus didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, what that really says to us, what it conveys to us is Jesus didn't try to take by force what was his. Jesus, instead of taking it, he humbled himself and it was given to him. Who tried to take it? Satan tried to take a position. I will exalt myself above the throne of God and I will be worshipped. Above God. Pride was found in Satan. And what happened? Satan tried to take it by force. And he was cast down. Jesus comes. And he doesn't try to take anything by force. He humbles himself. And through humble obedience. Even to death. It is given to him. The name above all names. Ultimate power. Ultimate authority. Ultimate rule. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. Jesus the king came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt and his humble obedience caused him to have the victory and receive the name that is above every other name. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 36 through 44, as Jesus is riding in, we see this graphic picture. Look at this with me. In verse 36, it says, He went, and they spread their clothes on the road, and then he went, and now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives. So he's, he's on the crest of the hill, and he's getting ready to go down. But before he goes down into the Kidron Valley, while he's on the crest of the hill, he sees Jerusalem before him. And it says, as he's drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him and said, hey, tell your disciples to be quiet. And he said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. I want to read to you from 
the pulpit commentary a short passage called the king's sorrow it says he beheld the city and wept over it it has been noticed that at the grave of Lazarus he had dropped silent tears but here he wept aloud this is what we see in the in the greek language that when it says here that Jesus wept what it's saying is he lamented i mean he I mean, everything within him, sorrow burst forth and Jesus is weeping and lamenting over Jerusalem. He wept silent tears at the death at the grave of Lazarus, but here he wept aloud. All the shame of his mockery, all the anguish of his torture was powerless to exhort from him a single groan or to wet his eyelids with one trickling tear. But here all the pity that was in him overmastered his human spirit. And he not only wept, but broke into a passion of lamentation in which he choked his choked voice seemed to struggle for its utterance. It was the agony of the Savior over the lost. There had been the time of the visitation, and Jerusalem had not known it. Now was the day, now was the hour, the last offer, the last opportunity. It was to be rejected. The city was hardened in ignorance. It was blinded by its own deceived heart, and all that remained was ruin. And thus he weeps still, For still men hear their own passions and inclinations, not the voice of the prophets whom he rises early and sends. And here's a quote from a little poem. Ye hearts that love the Lord, if at this sight ye burn, see that in thought, in deed, in word, ye hate what made him mourn. Here is the king coming into Jerusalem, riding in with a heart breaking because of the sinfulness that he sees. While everyone is rejoicing, Jesus is weeping. And then in verses 42 through 44, Jesus, the king, rides in at the appointed time. And so here's his response to the Pharisees who say to him, tell your disciples to be quiet. He says, I tell you that if these should be silent, the stones would immediately cry out. It makes me think of Joshua chapter 24, verse 27, when Joshua calls on the children of Israel and says, will you trust the Lord? Will you worship the Lord? Will you lay down your idols that you brought from Egypt? Will you lay down your idolatry? And they said, yes, we will. And Joshua says to them, no, you won't. And the Lord will not forgive your sins. You will reject the Lord and you will be judged for your rejection. And they said, no, we won't. That's when Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And all Israel cried, we're with you, Joshua. As for us, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, are you sure? They said, yes, we're sure. He said, are you sure? Yes, we're sure. He said, okay, you see this stone right here? He said, this stone is witness. This stone has heard your testimony. And this stone will give witness as to whether you break that testimony or not. But Jesus is not referring to that when he says this. He's actually referring to the prophet Habakkuk. Let me read this to you from Habakkuk chapter 2. 
go there. It's also toward the end of your Old Testament. It's a very small book. Habakkuk chapter 2. The whole chapter is very prophetic. Let me read the first verse. I I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. What Habakkuk wrote about, Jesus is fulfilling. When Jesus is sitting on that donkey's colt, looking over from the Mount of Olives at the city of Jerusalem, and he's weeping, and his disciples and the Pharisees are telling him, tell your people to be quiet. They're calling you the Messiah. They're saying things that they shouldn't be saying. And Jesus says, Listen, if these people don't cry out and proclaim who I truly am, then the very stones will cry out. Because here's what Habakkuk goes on to write in Habakkuk chapter 2, when you get down to verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from its timber will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed. Habakkuk is writing about Jerusalem. Before the Babylonian destruction, he's writing about the impending judgment coming to Jerusalem. Why? Because it was a city built with bloodshed. Who, establ- who establishes a city by iniquity? Behold, it is not the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire. The nations weary themselves in vain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to the bottle to make him drunk, to look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to to Lebanon will cover you and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. And he goes on. He's talking about this impending doom that happened historically. But Jesus calls to their attention. Don't think that these lawyers in Jesus' day, when he says the rocks will cry out if they didn't understand. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11. Don't think that they didn't think about Joshua and the the vow that the people of Israel made that we would never turn from the true and living God. And here is their God. Here is their king. Here is their Messiah riding into their city that they thought could never be defeated. Would never be overthrown to a temple that they were so proud of that was so glorious They just knew any moment God himself was going to come and walk into that temple, and he did. But they didn't know. They didn't know their God. 
And even as Jesus is riding in, they're rejecting him. But Jesus comes and he says this. Look at verse 44. Well, look at verse 42. If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that made for your peace, he is our peace. He is what made for their peace, and they rejected him. But now they're hidden from your eyes. The days will come when you will, your enemies will build embankments around you, surround you, close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Time. Not, not time like we count on a clock. Chronos, chronology. Time, kairos. The appointed time, the accepted time. A time that was established and appointed before there was a chronology. Before the foundation of the world, God said that this day would come when my son would ride into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, he says, has missed her time. And this is why he's weeping. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, riding into Jerusalem at his appointed time. And the appointed time for the city and its people. What about appointed times? Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. He says, in an acceptable time, same word, kairos. In an acceptable, in an appointed time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Church, This is your time of visitation. This is your time. Now is the time. Today is the day. Paul uses the same word here, kairos, to signify the appointed or accepted time and day of salvation. Now is that accepted and appointed time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What are you waiting for? What are your family and your friends and your neighbors, what are they waiting for? Now is the time. Today is the day. Some are waiting for the gospel because it's by the preaching, it's by the hearing of the gospel that men are saved. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Taylor is our Jerusalem. When you drive on the loop, and you look down over Taylor, do you ever think about all the lost people who live in this town? All the people who are lost without Jesus, who are undone without Jesus, who are on their way to hell and have, they're oblivious to it. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the gospel. They're waiting for someone to be the gospel for them. They're waiting for someone to preach the gospel, to tell them the gospel, to show them the gospel. They're waiting for someone to be Jesus to them. Jesus rode in at an appointed time. This is the appointed time. He rides into Jerusalem. And the Bible says that he goes into the temple. 
and he begins to clean house. Luke doesn't give a very detailed description of what happens here. Matthew and Mark give a much more detailed description. Verse 45, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders and the people sought to destroy him, but were unable to do anything because the people were attentive, attentively hearing him. They were listening. So Jesus the king comes into the temple and he begins to clean the house. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says you are the house of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is still cleaning his house. He's still purging his house today. In John 15, verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, I'm the true vine, you are the branches. My father's the vine dresser. He prunes the branches. He cuts off the excess so that they'll become more fruitful. And he says, you're already pruned. You're already clean. You've been cleaned by the word that I've spoken. How does God clean us? How does God purge us? He does it by his word. This word reveals what is in us, what is of us that is not of God. That is not in Christ. And as we wash ourselves with the water of this word, the Holy Spirit is pruning us, cleaning us. This is the work of the cross. This is what the cross does. The cross purges us. The cross cuts away our flesh. This is what Jesus is doing. He is establishing his house. He's purging his house. He's making it a glorious house. A glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. He's done this by his blood and the work of the cross. And he's doing it by the work of his spirit. That's causing us to be conformed to the very image of the son of God. We have a responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 13. Paul says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. We don't have a responsibility to save ourselves because we can't save ourselves. So when Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's not saying, save yourself. He's saying, you are saved. Now let that salvation work out of you. Let that salvation be seen in you. Let that salvation be seen through you. Christ is in you. Let Christ come out of you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It's God working in us. That's how he's purging. That's how he's cleaning. That's how he's pruning and making us fruitful branches that are abiding in the true vine who is Christ. God is working in us by his spirit. That's how we are being conformed to the image of the son of God. That's how we are being brought to the measure of the stature of Christ in his fullness. God is doing that. Are you trusting Jesus? Are you trusting him to do that? Do you want him to do that? 
Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. There's only one way to get to heaven. It's through the cross. Jesus is the way. He said, I'm going to show you the way. You know the way. Oh, we don't know the way. I am the way. Jesus went by way of the cross. Guess what? You're going to go by way of the cross too. There has to be this cutting away. And God in his grace and God in his mercy does this. When we trust in him. You guys are sitting on these chairs. You obviously trust that these chairs are strong enough to hold you up. I haven't seen anybody checking under their chair to make sure the chair's not fixing to collapse on them. To trust in Jesus is just like you sitting in that chair. What it means is that you put the full weight, your full weight on him. The full weight of your trust on Jesus. If you're putting part of your trust in him and part of your trust in something else, then you are not trusting him fully. And God calls us to trust him fully. This was the problem In Jesus' day, it's always been the problem. It was the problem in the garden when God says, don't eat of this fruit, eat of all the other. And man says, no, I think I know a better way, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. Trust him. Put all the weight of your trust in him. He is faithful and he is the only way. Do you know what kind of king he is? Do you know what kind of kingdom he rules? This is the appointed time. Trust him without delay. Trust him now. We're going to come to the table. And as you come to the table, I want to encourage you to trust him. This table is about trust. When you come to the table, the Bible says you're making a proclamation, a proclamation of his death. Do you trust in his death? Do you trust that his death is the only way that you can live? Jesus didn't weep because he was going to die. Jesus wept because he knew that unless people trusted in him, they would remain in death. Jesus instituted this table so that when we come and take this bread and take this cup, we are renewing our faith, renewing this covenant, reminding ourselves and making proclamation, not just to those around us, but the Bible says we make proclamation to powers and principalities in heavenly places. Every time we come to this table, we are reminding the powers and the principalities of the victory that Jesus wrought for us in the cross. And we should remind ourselves of the victory that we have in him because he died for us. Let's come to the table.